We're taking a, a one-week break from our study of Mark. Um, we're going to begin, we're going we're gonna to look at Psalm chapter 2 this morning, but we're going to begin in Acts chapter 4. We'll get there. I'll tell you how we're getting there in a second. Acts chapter 4 uh, records the first prayer meeting in the church's history. We know that they prayed daily. Acts chapter 2, you'll remember, tells us that the church gathered daily to pray. But in Acts chapter 4, we get the first recorded prayer meeting, and it was a wonderful meeting. Let me set the stage for this meeting. Peter and John had just been released from prison. They had walked out of jail, and they go to this meeting. They'd been arrested, well, because the day before, they were going to the temple to pray, and they passed a lame beggar. This beggar asks for money, and Peter looks at him and says, we'll do you one better, we'll heal you. In the name of Jesus Christ, get up. The guy got up. He was healed. It was wonderful. Um, needless to say, though, the religious leaders were not impressed. They were not thrilled by this miracle. You see, they had just spent three years dealing with their headache, a man named Jesus. He had done stuff like this all the time. We had just gotten through, in the book of Mark, five different scenarios where Jesus defied the religious leader's authority. He forgave a man, the audacity of him to forgive a man, right? He healed on the Sabbath two times. He collected tax collectors and sinners into his little group. And the religious leader's were threatened, and so they finally had him killed. And now, a few weeks after his death, here his disciples are doing the same things. This was not good for them. And so they instinctively, reactively threw them in prison, and Peter and John spent the night in jail. But this didn't solve their problem. You see, in the morning, they woke up to a public relations disaster. They had thrown two guys in jail for healing a man, and so the people were uh, furious with them, and so they had no choice but to let them go. And so they got, they got Peter and John, and they rebuked them, and they threatened them, saying, don't ever speak of that man again. That didn't work out. <laughs> Peter and John, immediately, they, they find their friends. They're released from prison. They go, they find their friends, and they tell them everything, and they pray. It's a spectacular prayer. Let's read it together in Acts chapter 4, verse 24 to 30. <clears throat> Six verses, but only two sentences. Sovereign Lord, who made the heavens and the earth and the sea and everything in them, who through the mouth of our father David, your servant, said by the Holy Spirit, why did the Gentiles rage and the people's plot in vain? The kings of the earth set themselves and the rulers were gathered together against the Lord and against his anointed. For truly in this city, they were gathered together against your holy servant Jesus, whom you anointed, both Herod and Pontius Pilate, along with the Gentiles and the peoples of Israel to do whatever your hand and your plan had predestined to take place. And now, O Lord, look upon their threats and grant to your servants to continue to speak your word with all boldness while you stretch out your hand to heal, and signs and wonders are performed through the name of your holy servant, Jesus. You remember this, whenever they were finished praying, the spirit descended upon the room and it shook the room where they were praying. Can you imagine that? A prayer meeting where the rooms literally shake. In other words, this was a great prayer. It was bold, it was passionate, and most of all, it was rooted in the scriptures. Peter and John had spent the night in prison, but the next morning they weren't shaken up like many of us would have been. They're confident because they had a theological, a historical, and a biblical perspective on what was happening to them. They found strength in the words of an Old Testament text. They found strength in the Psalms. I want us to be able to pray the same way. I want us to have the same kind of boldness and the same kind of confidence in adversity and so if you have your Bible, we're going to look at Psalm chapter 2. We're going to study the psalm that Peter and John turned to when they prayed the prayer that shook the room. So turn to Psalm chapter 2. 
As you're turning there, let me give you a brief introduction to this text. The psalm, if you look, it doesn't really tell us who the author is, and yet we know who the author is because the text we just read in Acts chapter 4 tells us it was David, and it was given to him by the Holy Spirit, said um, Luke in Acts. Its placement in the book of Psalms is very noteworthy. It's the second psalm. Most scholars agree that Psalms 1 and 2 are the introduction to the entire psalm. So in other words, the themes addressed in the first two psalms set the tone for the next 148. It's a critical psalm in the psalms. It was actually, it had an interesting place in Jewish worship as well because it involves the king. Scholars have called this a royal psalm creatively. But many think that this was read during the coronation service. So when a new king ascended the, the, the throne, they would read this psalm at the coronation service. It was a very important psalm in its original context. But the New Testament authors absolutely love this psalm. It's quoted four times directly in the New Testament. Four times this psalm um, finds its, uh, its place in the New Testament, and it is alluded to many, many other times. And so in other words, it's nearly impossible to overstate the importance of Psalm chapter two. It was important when it was written. It was important in the early church. It's important for us this morning. And so with that in mind, we're gonna read Psalm chapter two, verses one through 12. Let's read this. Why do the nations rage and the peoples plot in vain? The kings of the earth set themselves and the rulers take counsel together against the Lord and his anointed saying, let us burst their bonds apart and cast away their cords from us. He who sits in the heavens laughs. The Lord holds them in derision. And then he will speak to them in his wrath and terrify them in his fury, saying, As for me, I have set my king on Zion, my holy hill. I will tell of the decree. The Lord said to me, You are my son. Today I have begotten you. Ask of me, and I will make the nations your heritage and the ends of the earth your possession. You shall break them with a rod of iron and dash them into pieces like a potter's vessel. Now therefore, O kings, be wise. Be warned, O rulers of the earth. Serve the Lord with fear and rejoice with trembling. Kiss the son lest he be angry and you perish in the way for his wrath is quickly kindled. Blessed are all who take refuge in him. Let's pray. Father, we take refuge in you this morning and in your word. We cling to these words of truth given to us by David through the Holy Spirit. We need these words this morning, Father. And so give us eyes to see, ears to hear, hearts that would obey. We love you and pray this in Christ's name, amen. One of the great things about preaching the Psalms is that they, they often come with prepackaged outlines. You don't have to look hard to find an outline. They were written so that we could easily memorize them and actually sing them, and so it would make sense that they are divided uh, really nicely for our brains to process them. And so this Psalm is divided into four stanzas, and this will form the outline of our text this morning. So verse one through three, this will deal with the kings of the earth. Verses four to six will deal with the Lord's king. Verses seven through nine um, will record the king's speech. And verses 10 through 12, the kings will be warned. It's helpful to divide uh, the psalm up into these stanzas because if you notice, the scenery changed very quickly, okay? In the first stanza, we begin in the chambers of the kings of the earth. They're plotting against God. And so here we are listening to the rulers of the earth speaking against God. But in verse four, the second stanza, it jumps up to the heavens and now God speaks. How does God react to this um, plan of the earth, right? The third stanza then will jump down to Mount Zion and record the, king, um, the, the speech of the king. And then the final stanza, the narrator has taken over the pen 
to summarize the entire message of the psalm. And so that's how, that's kind of the flow of the psalm this morning. So we're gonna just go through this um, stanza by stanza. Let's jump in. David begins with a simple question. Why? Why do the nations rage? Why do the peoples of the earth plot in vain against the Lord and against his anointed one? Now, there's several ways that we can ask the why question, so we need to make sure that we get the tone right. He's not asking why like a spoiled child demanding an answer. He's not asking why. He's not putting God on the trial and uh, demanding an answer. I don't even think he's directing the question to God. I think he's just shocked that the most powerful people in the world would gather together to revolt against God. He's genuinely out of his mind. He's essentially asking Why are you doing this? Why are you wasting your time and your energy? You see, David understood that this was not a fair fight. Historically speaking, the nations have not done very well versus God. I want you to think through this. I mean, the scriptures from start to finish are filled with the nations conspiring against the Lord and ending up bankrupt. Think of the citizens of Babel for a moment. They had the new technology, the brick, right? They gathered together. They had all the resources in the world. They came together and they said, we're gonna revolt against God's command to scatter across the face of the earth. We're gonna build a city and make our name great. What did God do? He came down to see what was happening and in an instant, he thwarted their plans and accomplished his own plan of spreading them across the face of the earth. And in the next chapter, he sets up his own plan. He makes Abraham's name great. Think about Goliath. Don't you know that David had Goliath in his mind when he writes this? Why do the nations rage? Goliath, the mighty giant, he was standing in place of the Philistines and he mocked the puny little boy that came out without a sword, without armor. David raged against God and his anointed saying, I promise to feed your body to the birds tonight. And before he gets the words out of his mouth, he was lying dead on the battlefield. David killed him with a single stone without a sword The mighty giant fell. Why do the nations rage against God? It's not a fair fight. The stanza ends with a speech from these rulers. They gather together, they're taking counsel against God, and they say this this speech. Let us burst their bonds apart and cast away their cords from us. They're speaking against God. Let us burst their bonds apart and cast away their cords from us. This is the cry of the rebellious heart. The rebellious person cannot tolerate God's authority. They won't do anything to get away from his rule. They don't realize that God is actually kind and compassionate. God is a gentle God and his authority is gentle. Listen to the prophet Hosea speak of God's compassionate authority. Okay, this is Hosea chapter 11. God is reminding Hosea of how he led his nation Israel out of Egypt in the Exodus. Listen to these words. It's quite beautiful. I led them with cords of kindness with the bands of love, and I became to them as one who eases the yoke on their jaws. And I bent down to them and fed them. You see, the faithful person, the faithful person, the one who submits to God's authority and loves God, they love his leadership. He's not a harsh master. He leads us with cords of compassion. He takes our yoke, our burdens on himself. He bends down to feed us. That's the God we serve. And yet the rebellious nations, the rebellious soul, they cannot see this. They will do anything to get away from God's reign. 
Let me try to illustrate this. I know this is going to break down, but I believe it has some value, so I will boldly go out here. Generally speaking, most dogs, okay, most dogs will go on a leash. If you love your dog, you feed it, you train it well, it will go on a leash. Some dogs will even delight that you will put a leash on them and take it outside, right? They'll wag the tail. They'll enjoy it. They won't think you're cruel. But have you ever seen a cat on a leash? <laughs> Apparently, this is becoming a thing. I explored the internet and uh, found lots of articles that can teach you how to take your cat for a walk on a leash. And listen, if you've successfully walked a cat, I applaud you because the pictures I found were, they were, yeah, they were this. <laughs> um, uh, I promise no animals were harmed in the <laughs> filming of this. They have these special cat harnesses that cats just have not embraced yet. They want to break free from the tyrannical reign of the leash. Cats don't like to be led. They don't like to be told what to do. They'll fight it as hard as they can. They're like, I'd rather mop (laughs) than walk with you. They'll fight your authority. Okay, listen. When the nations gather together against God and they conspire against his anointed saying, let us burst their bonds apart, it's laughable. This is a laughable response. And so as we turn our attention to the second stanza, we're going to see this is exactly God's reaction. We, we chuckle at this. That's exactly what God does when the nations conspire against him. Listen to the text. He who sits in the heavens laughs. The Lord holds them in derision. As they gather together to wage war on him, God sits back and he chuckles. I want you to think about the power of that statement. God laughs. The Bible, it's not uncommon for the Bible to ascribe emotions to God for us to grasp who he is. Otherwise, how will we worship him? How will we know this God? But this one is, this one is interesting, isn't it? God is in the heavens laughing at their feeble attempts like a cat struggling against a leash. He can't help but chuckle. He holds them in derision. He mocks them. As difficult as this is to process, I have to admit, it's strangely comforting for the believer, for the faithful For the one that trusts in God, listen, to know that God sits in the heavens and he laughs at the nation's futile attempts to conspire against him. That is comforting. Because we forget this on the ground, don't we? The media, man, they feed on our fears. When something happens, bold headlines, all caps, the world is ending, right? And we just, it's easy for us to get caught up in it and to believe this nation's attacks. But listen, God is laughing. He's not stressed out. We don't need to be either, right? Now, this does not mean that God is indifferent towards rebellion, okay? The, the next verse will clearly indicate that. Listen to verse five. It says that, okay, God, after he laughs and holds them in derision, it says that he will speak to them in his wrath and terrify them in his fury. Their futile attempts to break God's bond is humorous, but the gravity of their offense, offense is very serious. The Bible is extremely clear on this point. Rebellion requires death. It will be judged. From start to finish, the Bible is very clear on that. It's been this way since the Garden of Eden. (laughs) You cannot sin and get away with it. God will come in his wrath. He will triumph. He he begins to unveil his strategy of how he will triumph over the wicked in verse six as he makes his own speech. In verse three, the kings had taken their stand and made a speech against God. And now in verse six, God will record a speech of his own. As for me, I have set my king on Zion, my holy hill. They had promised to break free from his reign 
and now God won't let it happen. Instead, he appoints his own king in his own place. The third stanza will focus on this figure. So now let's move to the third part of our outline. The scene will immediately jump to Mount Zion. God has established his king on Mount Zion, and now we're going to go there and listen to the king's speech. This is the anointed talking. I will tell of the decree. The Lord said to me, you are my son. Today I have begotten you. Now this is the climax of the psalm. The nations have rebelled against God, but he laughed. In opposition, he sets up the throne of this king. And now in verse seven, the king takes the throne and he delivers a speech. And listen, the message is shocking. The king would stand up before the people and deliver the speech. And he says, God has told me that I'm his son. Today I have begotten you. This is an astounding promise. Now in our highly scientific world, many of us would expect God's decree to be backed up with a DNA test, right? In our CSI world, you can't just claim that without proof, right? You can't just claim sonship. But that's not how the ancient world worked. Listen, in the ancient world, sonship was not simply a biological marker. It was an identity marker. It indicated a special and intimate relationship. It was not uncommon for the kings of that day to be called sons of the little g gods they worshipped, right? One of the most famous examples of this in the Bible occurs in the book of Exodus. In fact, God actually called Israel his firstborn son. If you remember in Exodus chapter 4, he called the nation of Israel his firstborn son. This is not a biological statement. This is an identity statement. He's saying that Israel was his chosen instrument. They are his son. He was going to interact with Israel in a different and unique way. And so in Psalm 2, verse 7, God announced that his anointed king is the son. He would be the chosen instrument to bring about judgment on the nations. The king was the son of God. And the next two verses demonstrate the extent of his power. Okay, listen to these. Ask of me, God says to the son, and I will make the nations your heritage and the ends of the earth your possession. You shall break them with a rod of iron and dash them in pieces like a potter's vessel. The nations don't stand a chance against the chosen king. The point is abundantly clear in this text that God's son will triumph. It's not even a contest. I love the song we just sang, A Mighty Fortress is Our God. The first, the first verse sets up how powerful our enemy is. On earth there is not his equal. But then by the third verse it says, one little word shall fail him. It's not even a contest. At this speech, God says that you will break the nations with an iron rod and dash them into pieces like a potter's vessel. This is a heavy message. It's a message of judgment against rebellion. But take hope because Psalm 2 is not simply a message of judgment. It ends on a note of salvation. And thank God, every message of judgment in the Bible has hope for salvation. And so we have hope this morning in the final stanza. And so we're going to look at the final stanza. The narrator is going to take the pen, David, and he's going to summarize this entire psalm with three very powerful verses. Listen to it right here. Verse 10. Now therefore, O kings, be wise. Be warned, O rulers of the earth. Serve the Lord with fear and rejoice with trembling. Kiss the son, lest God be angry, lest he be angry, and you perish in the way. For his wrath is quickly kindled. Blessed are all who take refuge in him. Now, if you remember, the psalm began with the leaders of the earth conspiring with one another. They're taking counsel with each other. The psalm will end with a piece of advice to the kings. 
as you're gathering together to conspire against God, here's some, here's some counsel. Oh, kings, be wise. Oh, rulers of the earth, be warned. This is why this is an appropriate intro for the entire text, for the entire Psalms. If you want wisdom, listen to this. There's three simple warnings here. The kings of the earth that are in rebellion, they're told to serve the Lord with fear. They're told to rejoice with trembling, an odd combination of emotions. Rejoice with trembling. And then they're told to kiss the sun, lest he, referring to God, becomes angry. In other words, rebellious nations, rebellious people, you need to give up your foolish pride and humble yourselves before God and his anointed, lest he become angry and you perish in the way. Their rebellion will end in destruction unless they turn in submission to the Son. And amazingly, the, the psalm gives the hope. It gives hope to these re rebellious nations to turn. It's highlighted in the final sentence. Blessed are all who take refuge in God. One commentator said it best. He said this, there's no refuge from God, only refuge in him. And so let's take a step back and try to process this entire message. What is happening here? What's the message of the psalm? It's quite simple. It is very foolish to rebel against God and his anointed. God sits enthroned in the heavens and he laughs at our simple attempts to defy his authority. He will thwart the plan of the wicked and establish his own plan of judgment and salvation through his son. That is an enduring message for all generations. It shows us who God is and that will last through all generations, but because the entire message seems to focus on, it seems to pivot on the son, it is essential that we determine who this son is. Who is the king that has been called the son? Let's figure that out because if our salvation revolves around that person, we must know who that person is. In the immediate context, okay, we're going back to the Old Testament, when it was written, in the immediate context, the son was probably David, or at least one of his descendants, maybe a son that took the throne, Okay. Um, this was a coronation psalm, and so they read this whenever the king took the throne, and so many people may have thought that the king was the son. Actually, 2 Samuel invites us to think of the text in this way. If you read 2 Samuel chapter 7, we're going to remember this covenant that David makes with, with, God makes with David in 2 Samuel 7. Listen to these words. I want to challenge you at some point. Read that entire covenant. It's beautiful. I'm going to read the last part of it right now. God speaking to David promising him an eternal throne. He says, David, when your, when your days are fulfilled and you lie down with your fathers, I will raise up your offspring after you who shall come from your body and I will establish his kingdom. He shall build a house for my name and I will establish the throne of his kingdom forever. I will be to him a father and he shall be to me a son. And so in one sense, the anointed king of Psalm 2 was maybe the king of Judah. Was this referring to Solomon, Right? the one that would build the house, build the temple, David's son, maybe Solomon's children, the king, that, that, that's how it could have been interpreted in the day, but let's be honest. The figure, read Psalm 2 and look at that figure. That will quickly outgrow any of the kings of Israel. If you look at their lives, man, even David himself, just scan over to Psalm 3 and look at David. He's hiding in the wilderness. That, that's a far cry from the son who wields an iron rod, isn't it? It's not Solomon, certainly. I mean, Solomon had a, a powerful kingdom, but man, he, he rebelled. It's certainly not Rehoboam. It just kind of keeps going from here. God's plan of salvation certainly would not consist of you humbly kissing 
Rehoboam. Who is the son then? The Jews were quick to realize this. The son in Psalm 2 is not that person. And so the interpretation of this, of this text shifted over the years as they realized that the son is not here. Psalm 2 became a messianic psalm. This is speaking of the king that will come. And so they treasured this text and they held on to it dearly. Because God has promised here a son that would come and break the nations with a rod of iron and dash them in pieces like a potter's vessel. But he's not come yet. They held on to these promises. Church, we get to hold on to the promises of Psalm chapter 2 in a completely different way. I love that final verse of uh, a mighty fortress. Dust, ask who that may be. Christ Jesus, it is he. We no longer have to wait for his arrival. The New Testament is essentially clear, is abundantly clear. The king has come and his name is Jesus. This is the point of the New Testament. The New Testament authors are looking back at all these promises and they're looking at the life of Jesus and they're saying, it's him. It is the one we've been, Jesus is the one we have been waiting for all these years. He is the son. He is the king that has come and reigning on Mount Zion. Everything in his life, they, they, they write with very, with meticulous care in the New Testament to show that at every stage in his life, he demonstrated that he is the son. He is the king. Remember, he was born of a virgin into the line of David's family. He's got the credentials of the king. Remember at his baptism, he was declared to be the son from the voice in heaven. And again, at his transfiguration, he was declared to be the son. This is my son whom I love. Throughout his ministry, he demonstrated with miraculous works and signs and wonders that he was the son of God. He was the king that had the power. He died with a sign above his head that said, King of the Jews. In, in uh, Acts chapter 13, Paul would quote Psalm 2, and he would confirm that Jesus was the son of God because he was raised from the dead. His resurrection confirms his sonship. It's quoted again in Hebrews 1. It's quoted again in Hebrews 5. Jesus is the son. He's higher than angels. He's higher than the high priest. He is the son. And if you look through Revelation, you will see Christ holding a rod of iron, constantly judging the nations. There is no doubting that Jesus Christ is the son. And he's even more magnificent and wonderful than we could have imagined from this psalm because he was no mere man. He was the eternal son of God. And so, in light of Christ Jesus, how can we interpret, how can we apply Psalm chapter 2? I want to offer three points as we close um, for you for Psalm chapter 2. First, I want to invite you to memorize this psalm and treasure it. Hide it in your heart. The Old Testament passage is abundantly vital for the church of Jesus Christ. It's valuable. As I've said, it's found all over the pages of the New Testament. It was the scripture that Peter instinctively quoted when he was arrested. God forbid that happens to us. Listen, if we find ourselves arrested, but if we do, what, what scriptures are you going to quote? What's going to come to your heart? What's going to come to your mind? Peter thought of Psalm 2. Why do the nations rage? This is just a fulfillment of God's plan, right? Memorize it and incorporate it into your spiritual vocabulary. Second, Think of God's sovereignty. This teaches us an incredible lesson of God's sovereignty. God's sovereignty in this text is both terrifying and comforting. I've hinted at it, but I'll, I'll rehash it. The most powerful people of the earth conspire against God 
but he simply shakes his head and laughs. Let this be a warning to anyone. Let this terrify anyone that tries to defy God and his authority. You won't get away with it. You won't get away with it. These promises of God's sovereignty are terrifying for the wicked, but they're comforting to us who find refuge in him. Happy, blessed are those who find refuge in God. God's not threatened by the nations. We shouldn't be threatened either. We should not be threatened if we take refuge in God. Now, don't get me wrong. The nations can do quite a bit of damage in their brief reign of terror. It can sting. They actually killed Peter. They eventually, they tried to kill John, but he wouldn't die, so they exiled him. They, they tried, it hurts. And yet they did not accomplish their plans. God thwarted them. As the leaders of our own world rage against God and his chosen people, remember that they're standing on uneven ground. It will not last forever. It will not last forever. Have an eternal perspective. Finally, all of our hope is wrapped up in the eternal son of God, Jesus. All of our hope revolves around Jesus Christ. I want us to take the warning of verse 12 seriously. It says to kiss the son. Kiss the son, lest God become angry. Jesus is our only hope of salvation. Let us humbly bow before him and reverently kiss him. This text has reminded me of the woman in, in Luke chapter seven. If you remember, Jesus is having dinner at Simon the Pharisee's house. And so at this point in the dinner, he's halfway through, he's received a very cold reception. He got in, the guy didn't even take his coat. He didn't anoint him. He didn't greet him. And Jesus is sitting there at a very cold dinner. <laughs> and they're just kind of testing him. And in the middle of this dinner, this woman who is a sinner bursts in the door. And everybody's ashamed. Wow, oh, what's happening here? She breaks open her most expensive bottle of perfume, fills the room with the odor, just puts it at his feet. And she weeps. And she kisses his feet. Of course, Simon was aghast. He could not believe that this woman would have the audacity to barge into his house. And what did Jesus do? He defended her. He, looked, he rebuked Simon and he looked at this woman and accepted her worship. This is what a fully devoted follower of Jesus Christ looks like. We're at the feet of Jesus, worshiping him, kissing the son. Let us humbly bow before Christ today. This is the way of salvation. Kiss the son lest he be angry and you perish in the way for his wrath is quickly kindled. Blessed are all who take refuge in him. Let's pray.